five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 104 of the Squid and Ultimate Leafs fan show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me as always, my winger Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how we keeping? All good, Michael. Got another busy week of hockey coming up this weekend, and I I'm happy about it. So ready to go. Life is good when you're working. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Squid, this week we feature part two of our compelling conversation with Brant Myers. Brant's story is one. In my opinion, every young player, any young person for that matter, should read to understand how easy you can fall in the lure of addiction. No, absolutely. I mean, I, gosh, I, I don't even know if it took me two or three days to read it. It wasn't that, it wasn't very long. I mean, uh, just the stuff that he went through as a young kid to start. And then, you know, later on, uh, the drugs you know, became prevalent and uh, the alcohol and everything else. But yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of people could re- could learn a lot from reading that book and uh, and then watching him now and, and how great he looks and everything and, and how great he's doing. It just shows you that, you know, if you do get into something like that, you can make it out on the other side. Yeah, no question. I mean, his upbringing was obviously very, very sad and uh, and just uh, awful that he had to endure that. But the fact that he cu- pulled himself out of the, the book, by the way, folks, is called Painkiller by Brent Myers. Uh, um, you know, here's a guy. I mean, he didn't even start drinking till his late teens. He avoided mm-hmm. alcohol. And it just it shows you just how it can just capture you and, and just bring you down that dark hole. And it's just. It's just awful, but the good part about the story is how he's recovered. And look, I guess what we have to understand is addiction is everywhere. The world I was involved in for 40 years on Bay Street, drugs and alcohol abuse were rampant. I mean, why should a professional athlete be any different? And as a matter of fact, with temptations at their fingertips every day of their careers, easier almost to fall than anywhere else. And the sad reality is when they suddenly become irrelevant, all those friends are nowhere to be found. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it's a very, very good lesson. I mean, not, not just for athletes, but for anybody uh, in any kind of business whatsoever, because it kind of teaches you what is lurking around the corner, so to speak, uh, you know, ready to pounce on you. And, and if you have that gene of addiction, of addiction in you, and you get into that, then you're likely going to be into it for the long haul. And, you're going to have to go to rehab and and uh, get yourself straightened out. Uh, maybe not once, maybe twice, or like him, I think, but four times, five times. Yeah, I mean, four. but that's perseverance on his part to go through that. And the last time I think he said was eight months, I believe. And uh, boy, that's a long time to be in rehab. It sure is, and I mean. Um, I- and anyway, it's it's an episode we don't think you should miss. And uh, and the book, as I said, is I think a must read for anybody. And uh, y- you know, you will be thoroughly 
not only entertained, but you'll sh- certainly feel for this for, uh, poor young guy and and be and be almost uh, elated from the way he's turned his life around and where he is today, which is a remarkable story. Now, in your day, Squid, how serious was the issue? I mean, the NHL kept the drug abuse pretty quiet until Sports Illustrated exposed them in, in a damning article. And before that, Don Murdoch was sort of the first real high-profile case that came out in the late 70s or the 70s and early 80s. I mean, cocaine, remember, was infamously becoming the drug for celebrities. And Robin Williams once said, cocaine is God's way of telling you you're making too much money. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I guess that's a pretty funny, good way to put it. But, um, you know, I, I think it was available. There's no question. I mean, uh, you know, I heard a lot of things. I never, ever saw anybody doing it, to be quite honest with you. Uh, but I did know that it was uh, readily available if you had the money, you know, which, you know, playing in the National League, even back in the 80s, if you wanted to do it, you had the money. And uh, so it was there. Uh, it was just a matter of whether or not uh, you were willing to go there. One of the things that we we touch on with Brent in the second half and the second part that you're going to hear today is the job he created himself post the addiction and mm-hmm. when he was sober, although every day you still are just one sort of sip or temptation away from falling back into the hole again with the LA Kings as a confidant, almost to the players to discuss anything troubling them. Yes. The league has professionals, doctors, all these sports medicine guys around them, but come on squid. Who are you going but, to trust the doctor? But who they didn't play. The- yeah, exactly. I mean, who are you going to trust a doctor who works for the club and the fear he may pass along your problem to a coach if things aren't going well, or a former player who lived a nightmare and dealt with similar demons. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, we've talked about it, Mike, and I know that I, I think every professional team in all the top leagues should have someone that played for that organization that went through something like that, uh, and you know, went through playing in that organization. You know, be it especially like a place like Toronto, Montreal, where you know, the expectations are so high. And I think a, a person like that could be very, very valuable to these young players today uh, who, you know, no, don't necessarily want to have uh, meetings with the coaches all the time and that sort of thing. It, it's another ear that they can kind of sound to and, and maybe, uh, you know, get some different ways of dealing with what they're dealing with. Well, I mean, not giving away too much of the story, Milan Lucic, now everything was confidential. Now, Milan Lucic went public with it when he went to L.A. He was struggling mentally with the adjustment to move to a new city, a new team, the pressures. Mm -hmm. And he immediately reached out to Brent and Brent worked with him. And Lucic gave him all kinds of credit for helping him settle himself down and and fit in. And the guy's still playing, by the way. Absolutely. And and, I mean, that's critical. you know, especially, like I said, you, you get into some places like Toronto, Montreal, anywhere in Canada for that matter, yeah. but especially those centers, and you're coming from a place that where maybe hockey wasn't that big and you weren't noticed all the time when you were out, outside the arena and that sort of thing, that could be, that could be a big a bit of anxiety for a player. So getting to sit down with someone who's been through that and, and helping them, like, like he helped Blue Teach, I think, I think it's immensely uh, great for the players to have that outlet. I, I couldn't agree more, and I just don't understand how 
these teams by hiring a former player, you're dealing with a multi-billion dollar business. So now mm -hmm. why not spend a nominal amount of money to, to protect all bases and to cover your assets? And, and it's nothing more than just another ear for a player to reach out and speak to. And it may be really nothing. Yeah. I mean, there, there's all kinds of little things too. Like it may not be drugs. It may not be alcohol. It could be just any little thing. And, uh, you know, a player that played in that market and went through similar things that this player is, is you know, anxious about can always help them, you know, because they've been through that. They know what it's like and they can sit down with them and have a good conversation and, and probably help him get over that anxiety of being in that bubble or whatever you want to call it uh, when you when you go outside the rink. Well, think about this. Let, let's let's just spitball on this. A few years ago, when Austin Matthews had that minor issue in, in the offseason back home in Arizona, imagine if he'd had a player such as you who went through it all yourself, lived here, you're a captain, he dealt with players. You know, he had you to reach out to and say, hey, Rick, what what should I do here? You know, like, is this press going to crucify me? What are the fans going to do? What's management going to do? Like, you, you lived it. Like, help me here a little bit if you can. Well... I mean, my experiences, uh, I mean, I would have said the first thing you should do is get a hold of Kyle and let him know and have him pass it on to Brendan because they're both going to hear it. Sooner or later, it's going to come out. Everything yeah. comes out these days and they're going to find out. And the last thing they want is a surprise four or five months down the road. Mm -hmm. So if you come out and tell them yourself, then I think everything is going to go a whole lot smoother. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's just sound advice. I mean, it sounds very common sense like, but you know, when you're in that situation and you're dealing with the future in front of you, it can be pretty tough to get your head on straight and think that way. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if I was 23 or whatever it was, was his age when he did that, would I have thought that? Probably not. Not a chance. You know, and I would have liked to have had someone that I could call and say, what do you think I should do? Exactly. You know, because, but I didn't, I didn't really have anybody that, that I could call and say, you know, so again, I, I, if I was in that situation at his age, I wouldn't have known what to do, but with the help of a former player who played in that market and, and went through uh, problems of his own, you know, that would be sound advice. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Squid, I think uh, people are tired of listening to us and hearing our opinions. <laughs> let's hear from the man himself. And let's turn it over to Brent Myers and hope you enjoy this. No, people don't understand that. And I don't, certainly. But, you know, we can certainly, certainly have empathy for you. And speaking of which, I think, let's talk about some of the people that were influential in your life, Mizey. Guys like... Um, Eric, you were surrounded by a plethora of stars at times. Eric Lindos and Paul Cockett, to name a few. You became close with those guys. Now, let me say this. I mean, it really isn't a coincidence that the stars, or maybe maybe I'll ask you both this question. It really isn't a coincidence that the stars hang and spend time with enforcers. One, because they get protection. But I think it's more importantly, it's a level of respect knowing that they are stars but without your contribution and sacrifice, and let's make no bones about it, it's a sacrifice to play the way you did and to play the role you did. It gives everyone all more concern, more room in the ice. 
And you were once a star in your own right. Well, I, I don't know. I've, I'm sure, Rick, you can attest to this, that the, the, the majority feel that like the, the, the heavyweights or the tough guys were some of the most liked guys in the room. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I, I think whether, whether you were looked at as a protector or not off the ice, maybe, but also I think just, just a fun loving friendly guy that like, wants to have fun and and Eric was only 25 years old at that time and I was 24 and I think cough was cough was like 37 I think and uh <laughs> you know and Paul coffee was a was a guy that um I looked I looked up to as much as I looked up to Wayne Gretzky so when I got traded to Philly and he was the first guy to walk up to me and said hey I heard you're from Edmonton and I'm like yeah he goes oh I love playing there and said welcome to the team and um so cough was amazing with the young guys not just me just all the rookies or our younger guys and then Big E was just Big E he was very private guy I I could see why and I respected that um and uh yeah we just we just got we hit it off yeah actually yeah now that I look back on it we for I think a year and a half I think we had Jeff Brubaker on our team you did. And I know Jeff was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. And uh, you probably wouldn't want to meet him on the ice if, if you were me anyway, if you were playing against him. <laughs> but you'd love to have him on your team. And, uh, you know, I got along with, with Brew extremely well. You know, like, I mean, we were, I wouldn't say we were best friends, but, you know, we, we had a, a mutual uh, admiration for what, each of us did as a player, I guess. He coached me, uh, Ricky. And, uh, oh, did he? Yeah, I got sent down uh, in Tampa for like uh, what was it, three weeks, and I went to San Antonio. They were called uh-huh. the Dragon, the Dragons, and it was in the International Hockey League. And Jeff Brubaker was the was the head coach, and uh, oh boy, <laughs> I think I had. 98 minutes and penalties in 10 games. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, my God. He was, he, he didn't, he, he was very like, this is what your role is. This is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Brew, Brew is, I love Brew. He was awesome. Yeah, great guy. Great guy. Now, Brent, talk about the influence of Daryl Sutter in your life. <clears throat> uh, I think that started when I was uh, just got to San Jose and I was, I was sitting by myself in the stands and there was nobody really there, but training camp was going on and he just came up to me and said, Hey, can I sit with you? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And he just started talking to me about, um, I, I, one of his family members had a problem with alcohol and, um, he didn't feel like a coach to me at that point as we were talking. It was weird. It was almost like, uh, this has nothing to do with hockey right now, Brand. Like this is, you know, and, um, I think from that point on, I just had this thing that I didn't want to let him down, you know, and throughout all my relapses that I had and, and rehabs, it's, it's, I think a Daryl, whenever I got suspended and he put his neck out on the line for me. Um, and that really bothered me. 
and because um, I really, I really would would go through the wall for him. And um, you know, I, you know, we still we still chat once in a while to this day, and um, it's uh, he's a, he's just a really really good man, you know, really good man. Yeah, he was a uh, he was an assistant when I was in Chicago, and uh, oh. I, I really enjoyed him. And uh, well, that whole family actually. I mean, they were all good people. The you know Brian, I played against him, and he was in St. Louis. We played, God, I don't know how many games against him over the years. And and you know everybody always says, who was the toughest guy you ever played against? I said Brian Sutter. I said we never had a fight. Yeah, but. Every night was a battle. It was like hack and whack and hook and, you know, do whatever the hell you needed to do to, to win, you know. But uh, yeah. they're, they're, they're a great family. And, uh, uh, you know, Daryl especially was, was good with me as well in, in Chicago. And I had my, my issues in Chicago, but he was always there to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I, I always appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. I got to see a different side of Daryl too when I was in LA when I worked for the Kings and I, uh, um, quite honestly, it was relieving for me not to be so tense around him all the time. You know, like I was, <laughs> like I was with when I played. Um, he had a way, like I don't know, he used to punch, he used to punch me in the in the side of the stomach if I had a good shift. You know, he wouldn't say anything; he'd just walk by and give me a punch. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you were, if you had a couple little bruises at the end of the game, you know you were doing good. You had a good game. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he was great to play for. And then when I worked there in LA, he was e even better. He was he was really good. He knew how nervous I was in that role, and he he tried to he tried to really calm me down. I do want to get into that eventually, but a couple of the other guys that seem to surround you, Dave, you must reflect back and and think. You know, some like we'll start with one, Joe Murphy. Now yeah. we know what a tragic story that has become. And Rick yeah. was just talking about him, some of the guys up north uh, a, a couple of a week ago. But play, talk about him playing with him. And did you guys ever get out and get after it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Murph was, uh, I was so, San Jose, I would have been 25, and Murph would have been maybe mid, early 30s, something like that. Um, but he was single. I was single. Um, so yeah, we'd go out quite a bit and hang out. And I love Murph. Like I was devastated when I saw that thing pop up on TSC. Yeah. I just, my heart broke for him because, uh, all I remember is, is, is the fun, loving, funny, nice Joe and driving a brand new BMW and living in this beautiful home. And, um, uh, his body was his temple, you know, like, uh, and then I see him, you guys saw how he was oh, yeah. and it yeah, just it's like, pretty sad. it was really, it was really sad to see that. And, and, you know, another, another guy that I, um, that I knew that I was friend was Matt Johnson and mm -hmm. to see, see Maddie, um, struggle like that. And, um, you know, uh, but yeah, it, so I don't even know where Murph is today. I don't know how he's doing. Or... Well, I had a good I had a good conversation with Trevor Kidd on this last trip we were on, and uh, he was one of the guys with Glenn Healy that that went and found him in Kenora. Yeah, and they got him into the hospital, 
But again, they had no control over keeping him there. So he left. I think Trevor said he's in uh, Saskatchewan now somewhere. He didn't know where. Uh, but oh, really? Yeah. Murph didn't want any help. And he said Trevor was was good. He said he was talking to me. He said, you know, Rick, he said it was one of the saddest things I've ever done. He said I'd be standing there talking to, to Murph. And then all of a sudden he'd be that he he'd be having a good conversation. And then he would say, wait a minute, there's there's demons out here, they're coming after me and everything. And he said, I didn't know what was going on. He said it was one of the saddest things I've ever had to do. And yeah. I can only imagine like I can't no, I can't imagine what he's going through. Yeah, it's uh obviously he needs to be, you know, psychologically evaluated and then medicated to uh, you know he's dealing with yeah. some some issues that are that are far beyond going to an AA meeting. Yeah, and, uh, Kevin Stevens was another one. Pardon me, Kevin Stevens yeah, is another Kevin, one. Yeah. Oh, Artie. Oh, yeah. Actually, um, I got to know Artie really well when he went into his um, first treatment center in Los Angeles. I was in my second one, and uh, I really like Artie. Again, just one of those guys that you never want to give up on, you know, um, as Mario uh, attests to in Pittsburgh. Um, mm -hmm. So it's great to see that he's working as a scout. That's amazing. And uh, I, I chatted with him maybe about a year ago. He said, mm -hmm. he's, doing, said he's doing great. So it's awesome. Well, it's really yeah, funny it's because Brockton told me when he got traded to Pittsburgh, he made a joke because we had all the boys back home who were the beer drinkers and everybody could do this. And he said, nah, you guys, they got well, a couple of our pros, not me. A couple of the pros said they're lightweights. The best beer drinker I've ever seen in my life to this day. And they wouldn't even hold a candle to is Kevin Stevens. Oh, no. And of course, we laughed at the time about it all. Yeah. And of course, the end result, look what happens. Yeah. You know? So it's only funny for so far. Yes. And the other guy I'd like you to touch yeah. on, and then this is somebody who did, you were spending a lot of time at the DM, was Bob Probert. And talk about how that all unfolded. So I was working out at Gold's Gym uh, with the trainer, um, and there was quite a few guys there, actually. There was Chris Chelios, Chris Nyland was there, and Rob Chris Le Simon. Chris Simon, Rob Blake, Jeremy Roenick. We had a, a Matthew Schneider. We had quite a crew there. And... Uh, I was tying up my shoes and my trainer goes, Hey, there's a guy on the bicycle up there who's riding it and he's warming up. He goes, he's going to, he's going to be your partner this summer. And, uh, I said, Oh yeah. I said, who's that? And he goes, uh, uh, he goes, you'll meet him soon enough. Just get up there and get your shoes on. So I tie my shoes and I start walking up the stairs and I look and there's Proby riding a bike. And again, like Bob Probert to me was, you know, not as big as Gretz, but right below Wayne. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm riding the bike and there's, there's big Bob, you know, we're, we're chatting. And, uh, the next thing, Hey, you want to come over to the house, and hang out with Danny and have dinner and the kids. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. And then, uh, obviously the, the whole, you know, the stories I talk about there are the stories, but, you know, one thing that when I watched the documentary on on Bob, it was called Tough Guy. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. I really 
I really wish that they would have showed a little bit of a a, a brighter side of of Proby in that in that documentary, uh, because of the way that he was loved by his teammates and what a great guy he was, and and not to, not to focus on such the the darkness that was sometimes going on around him, but also to shed some light on what a great human being Bob was, you know, um, because that's all that I knew. Yeah, he was dealing with what I was dealing with. Um, but at the same time, you know, everybody loved Big Bob and he was just a, a great human being. Um, and I had nothing but uh, great things to say about him. Yeah, he was. And uh, I, I remember well, Dave Hutchison, who's very close to Bob and playing uh, NHL alumni games with Bob, going all over Ontario, playing all these games. And, and like he was just like a big teddy bear. Like he just, you know, I, I, I thought when I watched that documentary, I, I kind of thought the same thing. I thought, yeah. you know what? I, I know the guy. I said he, he's much different than that. He's a very good person and but they're not showing that you know i think you're right i I agree with you um now the other guy let's get to him the guy who was at the top gretz yeah yeah now the first time you met him and talk about that whole situation (laughs) oh my gosh so and listen i i like me and brent uh we got sent down to, ta- uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, which was the which was the IHL back then, and um, again we just you know I think I think Brent liked hanging out with the tough guys too, and um, so so me and Brent became really close that year in Atlanta with his with his wife Nikki, and we had a really good time. And um, that summer I was at home, and he just phoned me and said, "Hey, Mizey," he said, uh, "I'm getting married. Do you want to come to the wedding?" And I said, yeah, I go, that'd be awesome. I go, uh, who's going to be there? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I, you know, family. I'm like, oh yeah. I said, okay. I said, yeah. I mean, I would have went if it was just Brent and Nikki though. Like I, I love those two people. They're awesome. Uh, but anyways, we show up in Toronto or I did. And when we drove to Brantford and, here we are pulling up to this house that I dreamt about skating in. And uh, I knock on the door and Brent goes, ah, you don't need to knock. And then Wayne opens the door up and uh, he said, hey, Wayne. And I, I just said, hey, hey, Brent, you know. And uh, he goes, what are, you, what are you drinking tonight? And I said, anything that you are. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And we sat, we sat together with his mother and um, we just had a, a few drinks throughout the night and we talked about hockey and um, talked about just life and it was, yeah. And, and then here's the one thing I remember about Wayne that's, that separated him. So the next day was the wedding and everybody was in a hall and they were all dancing and stuff. And I... I, I was by myself. I didn't really know anybody other than Brent and Nikki, really. And I was just standing by myself in the corner. And Wayne was sitting on a on a chair like mine. And he saw me by myself. And he looked at me and he waved me over. 
and he said, come here, come here. And, he, and then he moved over on this little skinny chair and he said, grab a seat. And that was just the type of guy that he was mm -hmm. like, he, he saw me all alone and he invited me over and I sat there. And so he was, he was bigger than life with all those posters on my room. Then I got to meet him and he was even bigger than that. And, and I think that's a message for anybody that's in the, in the public eye. And that is a, um, where you have so many young kids that look up to you is to never, dis never try and not disappoint them because you only get one chance sometimes to meet your idol. Did you talk about the roll yeah, of tapes? Oh no, no, funny. no. <laughs> oh, you didn't? I never brought up the You didn't tell him? I was too oh. embarrassed. I was too embarrassed to bring up the tape. But uh I I did go downstairs and, and Walter uh took me down and he said uh because he's just I was by myself and I was looking at all these uh, trophies and jerseys and all this. And he goes, come here, I'll show you something. And he opened up a padlock to this door and he opens the door up and uh, there was like, I think there was about 50 of Wayne's sticks um, all taped up and they were all record breakers. And they were getting ready to go out to the Hall of Fame. And uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was an incredible moment for me. Squid, you met him as a 16 year old. The World Juniors. Yeah. Uh, I think he was 16. I, I was 17 or 8. No, I was 18. So Bill Derlego got a, uh, hurt his knee right before the World Juniors. So they needed a seminar. Well, here's this skinny little kid from Brantford that's leading the OHL in, in scoring. And I don't think anybody thought when he came to the to, to Montreal that he was going to do what he did, but he led the tournament in scoring and uh, was one of the nicest guys I think I've ever met. And of course, Walter, I know Walter very, very well. He was always with us in the NHL alumni games all over Ontario. He would come and what a wonderful person. Uh, you know, you'd see him. I remember going to a rink. We went to a rink in Brantford and, and I remember Brent plays in a lot of those games with me now. And he would always say that his dad would just go to the rink to watch the kids play. Like, not his kids, just watch <laughs> kids play and talk to people and everything. And I always thought, you know, that's pretty cool that, that he does that. And uh, it was one of those things that, that uh, I thought was pretty cool for a guy like Wayne Gretzky's father to do. And... You know, it was, uh, yeah. it was just, to me, it was like wonderful. I, I thought it was great, uh, you know, and, and of course, Brent still plays with us all the time. I'll say yeah. hello to him. I'm going to see him next week in Belleville. Yeah. Tell him I, so yeah, I will I, definitely say hello to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why too, um, Mike, it, it really bothered me when I, uh, when I had, didn't have to, but when I sold, sold Gretzky's stick that, that uh, uh, Kevin Stevens got me after we played the Rangers that night. And, uh, you know, I swore I'd never get rid of that thing. And I was really down and out. And um, I just remember saying to the guy who I sold it to, I think I only sold it for like, I don't know, it was cheap, like a thousand bucks or something. And I just said, Hey, if I ever turn my life around, make sure you sell me that stick back. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, I'll keep it for you. 
And then uh, I came knocking about three or four years later. I said, I'm back. I said, uh, can I get the stick? He says, yeah. He says, I, I really don't want to give it back to you. He says, but you know what? He, yeah, I said I would and I will. And yeah, I got the stick right next to my bed, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a favorite story for sure. Yeah. yeah. I was going to get you to bring that one up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in my estimate, there's a couple of good, we want to get to some of the good part. Uh, and, and, you know, there is a really good, we're going to get to the good stuff. Before that, I just want to lead this in with this. In my estimation, as little as it may mean anybody, this passage from the book is, is, is sort of sums it up. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote you again in this one. Hangovers are a gift. Those agonizing hours when you see yourself through the haze of physical pain and the ache of mortification may be the only honest moment in a drunk's life. Honest in the sense that for a few hours, you know that booze will only make things worse. That's whatever you were feeling. That whatever you were feeling the night before wasn't really happiness. For a short time, you can see the laughter and hilarity as nothing more than a fraud. Hmm. I think that's a really powerful statement. Yeah, the word fraud is uh, really struck home with me. You know, I uh, and the word fraud, and then and and then a mirror. The mirrors in your house, you know, mm -hmm. they never lie. And um, and and when you can't look at yourself in the mirror um, for a period of time you know that, that something's wrong and you're usually a fraud to yourself. Uh, and that was, um, yeah, a pretty power, powerful statement. Squid. And so yeah. true. So true. It, it's, uh, you get to a point where, like you said, you, you can't look at yourself in the mirror because you're doing something that you know is wrong, but you can't help it. And yeah, you know, other than, you know, I remember the night I just broke down and I said to my wife, I got to go, I got to go somewhere and get some help. And uh, I was gone three days later and uh, it was the best decision I think I ever made in my life because at that point I had two boys and, and uh, you know, I said to myself, if I don't get help, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my family and I'm going to lose everything that yeah. means anything to me. And I didn't want that to happen. And, uh, well, on you know, so I case, got to the point, got to the I'm point sorry, where I said, I need to get some help. Well, in Brent's case, mm -hmm. the road to recovery started with the sort of the coming of age or sort of the, this little person entering your life when you get that phone call one day. Maybe you want to address that. Yeah. Oh, peanut. <laughs> his daughter yeah chloe yeah um you know god's been got yeah god's been uh, dangling little uh you know little carrots in front of me from time to time or little gifts that he would throw down whether it was the the nhl reaching out again for the for the fifth time and then obviously my daughter was being born uh she was born i believe it was about um 10 days after i got into treatment so didn't see her for a while for maybe eight months um and then 
I got to meet her and uh, yeah, once you, once you hold your child, it's, <laughs> as you guys, you guys know, it's pretty hard to, yeah, pretty hard to turn it back, you know? So yeah, she was a real pivotal part of me uh, getting sober. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I mean, like, yeah. like I said, like I had a few boys at the time and I thought if I don't do something, I'm going to lose these guys. And that's not something that I was ready to do. I, I just, I, I didn't want to lose my boys and my wife and, and my house and everything. And, you know, I made, I made a conscious decision to, to go and, and get help. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that I did pretty well, obviously, was that my daughter's never seen me loaded. And uh, coming from uh, an abusive alcoholic stepfather it was pretty important to me to, to to hold true to that to her um so i'm proud of that well also you should be proud of let's talk about the program you ran for indigenous kids mm -hmm. started some of your hockey schools yeah that was called the greater strides hockey academy and it was in calgary and my uncle charlie who was uh, the grand chief back then i had a proposal that i built up for the reserves and uh i just i noticed that there wasn't any hockey academies on the reserves these none of it it was it was all within the city and um so i got a couple big sponsors on board and i would run these camps uh it was a free camp for a hundred kids between the age of five and 17. and they'd come for three days and we brought in good food and we brought in an elder and we brought in um, some physical training uh, for them every day or dry land training. And yeah, it was great. We did, I did that for, uh, I think four or five years uh, until another, a different phone call came. <laughs> well, I will talk about that in a second too, but Squid, you've got some experience in that too, just from last weekend. Yeah, it was, uh, you know what, I love going up to those uh, territories and, um, well, actually, it's funny, we we're coming off the ice and the Grand Chief for all of Canada, uh, a lady, and she's given out, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what they were, but anyway, I, I won't get into that part, but I walk up to her and she looks and she goes, oh my God, it's Rick Vive. Rick, you were my favorite player. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's great. It, but you know what? It was, these people are so wonderful up there at Cochrane and, and yeah. places I talked about before and, and uh, Manitoulin Island. And I love going to these places because they're such wonderful people and they treat you very, very well. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's unbelievable, really. Yeah. 100%. And, well, one of the other things you accomplished in your life, and this is something that uh, Squid and I have had chats about, and this is something I, I, I just can't believe the NHL's in more behind, is you took some courses. You obviously were right on the ground floor living it yourself, so you know totally the experience, and there's other players that are in the same boat. You got an unexpected call from a GM at a valet and maybe walk us through the program that you set up. Yeah, so... That would have been the summer of 2015, I think. And uh, Dean Lombardi reached out to me because there was some things going on with some players that summer yep. um, or that year, I guess. And um, 
you know, he just said, can you fly to LA? And that moment in my life, um, I think because it was so hard to get that phone call, like that, that, that was literally seven years in the making of never giving up and, and wanting to stick with something and believe in it. And uh, even, even when things weren't working out really with a job in the national with, with, to help the players out. And I couldn't figure out why I'm like, what's the downside here? Like, um, to having somebody in, in a supportive role, I don't understand what, what's, it's not money. Like, what is it? And, um, so after seven years, I got the call. And I think that for myself personally, that, um, you know, I, as I was sitting, uh, on the plane with the Kings getting ready to fly off, it was just one of those surreal moments. I was looking outside the window and I said, I can't believe that, that this is happening again. You know, like I've, um, it's true what they say that, you know, don't quit before the miracle happens. And, and, and I didn't, I didn't, I, and I didn't give up. I just didn't give up. I kept going, you know, well, and, maybe explain for the listeners what the job entailed. Yeah. So basically it was a, it was a, you know, how can I put it? It would be like if when I, me or Ricky were playing and like, let's say Bob Probert was retired and Bob Probert had, 10 years of sobriety and a little bit of credentials behind him. And he was hired by the team as like a third party guy that you could talk to. Um, and that was, it was strictly confidential. It was between you and Bob and that was it. Um, that's what I was for the players and the coaches and the staff is that um, I was just a, a, a healthy confidential outlet for them to go to. Um, I wasn't a miracle worker and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a wizard stick or anything like that. But what I did have is I had experience in almost anything that they came to me with. Mm -hmm. And that, um, maybe not only once, you know, I've done that a few times. And, uh, and then I also had, um, I had some uh, contacts in Los Angeles that I could get a hold of to, for aftercare, if the players needed to um, continue their, whatever program that I wanted to set up for them. So yeah, that was great. That was uh, three best years of uh, of my life. It was a really, really, it was a fun job. Now, do you think? Uh, do you think that all the leagues? Do you think that's something that, uh, all the teams in all the professional top leagues should have? Well, again, so. If you were to go, let's say, and have all 32 GMs in a room and you went up to the you went up to the board and you had a, a Sharpie and you gave each GM a Sharpie and you laid out the program of what it is and how it works. And you said, OK, I want you to walk up there and just write down one negative aspect of this. I, I don't know what they're going to write. Like, I don't, right, yeah. like, what are you, what are you going to say that this, that that's bad about you guys hire nutritionists, um, mm -hmm. psychologists, you spend all this money on other things. Um, what's the downside here? And, um, mm -hmm. I don't know if they'd be able to write anything down. I don't. Now, now Rob Blake was never really a fan of the program from the beginning. Did you ever over yeah. the years, have a chat with him as to why. And here's a guy who was in the line. He, he played with him. <laughs> he played like, 
No, but I mean, here's a guy who lived it. You know, maybe it wasn't a bad actor or anything, but he knows of the temptations and they're living in a place like L.A. And especially would have gone on there. Well, you know, yeah, with with Rob and I, Rob's a really good man, too. Like we got to spend some time together when um, he was the assistant general manager under Dean. But as I write about, you know, he didn't really understand what I was bringing to the table. And he be he believed that 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 role of mine could be handled by some of the on ice player development coaches. And, um, no. you know, I just tried to explain to Rob that like, it's way different than that Blakey. And, and, and listen, at that point, that was Blakey's team. And, and I respected that. And, um, I wish him and that team nothing but success. I've met some great people in LA yep. and um, things come to an end and I'm, I'm totally okay, okay with it. Um, but I just sort of knew once, once Dean got let go and, and Daryl got let go that probably that, that role wasn't going to be around anymore. Well, which is, a, which is really a shame. I mean, you know, you got a lot of young players that, you know, are making a lot of money and they, you know, they don't know where to go for any kind of help and they don't want to go to the coaches. They don't want to go to the general manager, but if you're there or somebody is there to help them, but they don't have that. I don't yeah, get it. And, and, you know, like, especially if there's somebody on the team that is known to have a problem, Right. So, so let's say in for the, for instance, for the Montreal Canadians to have hired a guy in that role two, three years ago, maybe Carey Price wouldn't mm -hmm. be dealing with what he's dealing with now. Yeah. You don't know. Right. Um, so, and I, and again, I'm not saying that, that, you know, we're the end all be all, but all I'm saying is that what's the downside to having that support system there? There is none. There so, is. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I don't I'm see gonna... any downside to it whatsoever. I mean, and, and, you know, to consider the fact that these teams all have so much money that they can have that and they, and they don't, you know, but as you said, like our, team that keeps these guys on the ice can handle that. No, they can't because they've never been through it. Like you said, like, I mean, it's something that you had to have gone through and learned from to be able to help someone. Well, Listen. yeah, that's, that's some school of hard knocks, man, that, 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 that you, that you, you're in the trenches for, for a while in that to get there. You know, <laughs> yeah. hey, listen, not I good prices either. <laughs> yeah. No, but I come from a world on Bay Street where, uh, you know, 40 years there and all the same type of trappings with guys getting money too fast, getting the limelight, uh, the high rolling, the limos, the five star dinners and all that stuff. So all those same things come at guys with drugs and the alcohol and the abuse. It's no different. And yeah, the thing is, is what people don't understand is just because a guy plays hockey for a living doesn't mean he doesn't have the same problems at home with a kid doing bad in school or the neighbor, his fence is too high or the stuff's growing over in his yard or 
he doesn't have mental issues or drinking problems or drug problems the same way every one of us has. And that's the that's the striking thing with me that I can't believe the NHL doesn't recognize this. And for what you were doing with these players, it sounds like you were there daily for these guys and they had somebody that they could just go and shoot their shit with you for a couple of hours or an hour, 15 minutes, 20 minutes daily. And they saw you there and you were, you played it, you lived it. And there was somebody you could maybe confide in. So let me ask you this, Brent. How shocked would people be to know how many people really do have issues in the National Hockey League? Um, well, I think people that are in, in, in management or, you know, the coaching side or the players, like the fans, the fans may not understand, but I think people that are in the hockey circle, um, they have an idea, you know, and like, yeah, you right. said, like you said, Mike, it's no, whether you have hockey skates on or, you have, or you're carrying a briefcase to work, um, addiction or whatever other issues you're dealing with, they, they, don't, they don't discriminate on what you do for a living. No. Just, no. You know, so, but unfortunately, the other thing too is the accessibility and the, any kid that gets hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars at 18 or 19 can be a bit of a, a, a scary recipe uh, down the road, so. Well, I love what you said uh, when Dean asked you, how do I know what, if you're doing your job? Oh yeah. You said, if you don't hear from me, then I'm doing my job. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I, you know, and it, in a, it is true though, right? Like how, how are we gonna, you know, it was hard, it was a hard role because you're getting paid a salary and um, you don't want to talk to the guy. You know, it's like it's, it's, you can't talk to the boss. Yeah, it was but but he was he was he said, listen, I'm paying you to I'm paying you to do to, to, to do a job and I'm just gonna leave you alone and let you do it. And that's it. And so he was he was great. He was awesome. That was a pretty that's funny line, I gotta admit. Yeah. yeah well. <laughs> well, the fuck do I know this is going to be working or not? <laughs> Are you stringing me along? You don't hear from me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. pretty good. Well, now, Brent, okay, well, just, just a couple minutes. I want to thank you so much for taking time to do this because, uh, yeah, I know you get asked a lot. But um, one of the best exchanges you had between another enforcer, you must have had some great lines. I mean, it's always we got to go and all this kind of stuff. But any funny exchanges between some of the guys over the years? Um, as far as funny exchanges, um, probably not funny. Like there was like, it wasn't necessarily funny, Okay, you know, um, maybe after the, after the game at the bar, when you're hanging out and sh shooting the shit, but during on the ice, it was, it was pretty, pretty serious. Yeah. Well, I guess what I was looking for is maybe so you can't like the, maybe the funniest reason why a guy couldn't fight one night because, you know, if you're injured or something, but maybe something that you, that you just wasn't normal. Yeah. I can't really think of uh, too much on that one though. Okay. Yeah. Because usually you're too busy dropping the gloves. They're ready to go right away most of the time anyway. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't, remember any tough guys when I was playing that had any excuses. I mean, even if they had broken hands, they were probably still ready to go out there and, and do their job and they would go out and do it. And, uh, yeah. if you were in the lineup, just... if you were in the lineup, yeah. uh, and you, and you told the trainer that you were good to go that night, um, for the most part, 
you know, you had, you had to live up to what was coming, you know. <laughs> so. so just oh, in boy. conclusion here, guys, this one's for both you guys, possibly. Um, you know, being an expert in the field, both of you, with the world of addiction and, and having demons, um, how does the NHL attempt to prevent another Brent Myers or Rick Vibe from coming along or that developing? Is there, there is no secret sauce or formula to it, is there? No. no, but, but there's, again, all I know is this, is that, is that if I had a Bob, Pro, so if Bob Probert was, was in my role and he was in Tampa Bay or San Jose or Philly, I would have 100% used him. What would it have worked? I don't, I'm not sure. I can't say that it, it would have worked, but what I know is that I would have given it a shot. And I would have, and I would have used Bob Probert away from the rink. As Rick said, we didn't have anybody, or I, me and Rick didn't have anybody at that time that was sort of in that confidential role. Everybody that was around me had a decision on whether I was going to get a paycheck or not. And as if I'm going to talk to those people about my problems. That's right. So yeah, yeah I would absolutely. Have, right. So you know what? If you, it. it all I know is if there was a probie that, that was in the role I was in, I would have called Bob and I would have used Bob. Yeah. Squid, your thoughts? We, we, I mean, I mean, you were a little bit after me, obviously, but I mean, when you go back to the seventies and eighties, it was, there was nobody to, to help you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Nobody. If you went to one of the coaches or the general manager, and said you had a problem with alcohol, you were gone. Yeah, yeah. I think what <laughs> you were gone. Is. Yeah, and that and that's why with that program in Los Angeles, I wanted to do one-on-one -on -one meetings with the players um, at training camp and let them know exactly how the program laid out and what mm -hmm. that how serious that confidentiality was, and um, and that's the key is is trust between people. Uh, between people so yeah. yeah 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 well you know i just i mean i i am is my final thought to be you would think that you've mentioned probert already but Bilag, bugard all these other guys with the tragic innings that came as a result of what happened all around them you'd think they'd be strong enough signals to address this or at least try to prevent repeats of all this happening again so it's all there it's an insurance policy too well that's right like as I say in the book, it's it's uh, a SWAT team. You have a SWAT team on standby. You may not use them for six months, but when you have them, you're happy that they're there. <laughs> you're right, absolutely <laughs> happy they're there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, well, I don't think there's enough people in positions in the National Hockey League that think that way. You know, they, they don't. They think everything's going to be okay. They, they, you know, we don't need that, that guy to help our players. You know. We, we can do that. We can, you know, whatever. But if one of those players comes to them with a problem, it's like, okay, you're out of here. You're gone. Yeah. But there could have been someone there to help that player before that happened. And, well, and yeah. they, 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 I don't know. They're, they're blind to it, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, again, it's a bit of a head scratcher to me, but I don't, I don't run that league. But, um, I just think again, uh, 
lastly on that whole thing is that I just, I, I don't understand what the downside is. I, ne I never really no. have. Uh, well, I would, I would, you know, I would suggest possibly too, that if they ever do admit there is a problem, they open them, they, they would fear, be fearful. They open themselves up for lawsuits. So possibly. money does probably have a say in this as well. Possibly. Yeah. Well, Brent, well, if listen. you look at, if you look oh, at uh, some of the things that are going on in some of the top leagues, you know, with uh, the quarterback, uh, what's his name, Deshaun Watson or whatever, like, yeah. you know, stuff like that. I mean, those are things that probably could have been avoided, you know, if if somebody was there for him to talk to. But unfortunately, there isn't. And, and these guys don't really care. Like, you know, like we said, like, if, if you come in and tell the coach that you have a problem, you're gone. Get out of here. <laughs> like we don't we don't want anything to do with you anymore, and I, and I don't think that's a way to treat uh, professional athletes. No, I think I think your your way of doing it, and like you said, there's no downside to having someone that went through that that can help players get through it. Yeah. Well, on that note, Grant, listen. It's been a great, we've had you here for an hour and 45 minutes. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, your book for all that listening out there, Painkillers, the book. I highly recommend it. I got to admit, when I went to the bookstore and looked, I saw the, the, the side, the cover. And I yeah. thought, I read rock books too. And I thought, oh, geez, this is misplaced. This should be in the rock section with the cover. And all of a sudden I took a closer look. I go, wait a minute, I got to read this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so you got my attention, that's for sure. Yeah, I I wanted to add a little bit of uh I you know, I don't know. It's a, the cover was a little bit dark, but then the you know, I ha I wanted to have that hummingbird flying and landing on the stick for hope. And uh, you know, so I'm glad the way it turned out. That was cool, it's great, great yeah. part. Well uh, I think I think I read it in a day and a half, so oh, <laughs> oh awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't put it down. I mean, hey, I, when you live that That's life right. and you That's go right. through it, yeah, you want to read that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, okay. Fantastic. Well, listen, Brent. Thanks again, man. Yeah. And uh, okay. all the best to you moving forward. Thanks, guys. You guys have okay. a great day. Yeah. Thanks, Brent. <laughs>